in the woods. Four young Athenians run through the forest in pursuit of love, and a chorus of boys usher us into a magical world. I'm Katie Derren. Welcome to this Glindbourne podcast. Benjamin Britten begins his magical opera, A Midsummer Night's Dream, in the realm of the fairies. The king of the fairies, Oberon, performed by a countertenor, is arguing with Queen Titania over a young changeling boy. Oberon wants him to be his henchman, but Titania refuses to give him up. Oberon is furious and sends Puck, the sprite, to find a magical flower, which will cast a spell on Titania when its juice is sprinkled on her eyelids. She'll fall in love with whomever or whatever she first sees when she wakes. Puck is a rhythmically spoken, not sung, role. Two performers who know how it feels to inhabit Britain's enchanted world are soprano Dame Felicity Lott and countertenor James Bowman. I joined them in the green room overlooking the lawns at Glyndebourne, 35 years after they first performed together as Oberon and Helena in the original Glyndebourne production of Britain's Dream, directed by Peter Hall. We had some very funny incidents in this uh, production because the trees, as you know, moved around and the bushes, and one of the bushes drank too much in the interval and fell asleep and snored, and we had to push him with our feet. And then I was coming on for one scene and, and a tree said to me, I'm going to be sick. <laughs> So I pushed her into the wings. So one of the trees vanished. <laughs> and and when I did our first, made our first entrance at the uh, first orchestral rehearsal, they'd just washed the set, which um, the stage, which was was, was sort of shiny, wasn't it? It was shiny and rather slippery. That. And so I came on pursuing Dale, who was trying to get away from me, Demetrius, of course, this wretched woman who was always all over him. And he slid and <laughs> went yes. straight across the stage and into the wings. I remember that. <laughs> Darkness is never far beneath the enchanted surface in Britain's version of Shakespeare's comedy. Britain's lascivious music for Oberon exemplifies this. Professor Mervyn Cook from the University of Nottingham. What Britain does with Oberon is to saturate the music with all the chromatic notes so it sounds really unhealthy and corrupted. Um, this, perhaps rather surprisingly, reminds us of, of uh, the ghost of Peter Quintin, Turn of the Screw, and, and the sort of corrupting influence he can have. And this is the dark side that Britain was always partly drawn to. It's also quite interesting that 
uh, the sonorities of Indonesian gamelan music, which Britain was very much influenced by. Uh, these bright, tinkling percussion sounds are both attractive, but also rather unsettling and otherworldly. And his fairies are a prickly bunch, really, as they bounce around to these almost childlike percussion noises. Julie Sanders is professor of English at Newcastle University. As she explains, Britain's dark rendering of Shakespeare's play was part of a trend of reinterpretation of Shakespeare in the mid-20th century. What you start to get in the criticism post-1945 is the sense of the darker shades and shadows of the play, dark sexualities, ambiguities, and you see that absolutely in the way that, that Britain seeks to adapt and interpret dream. To go straight into the forest, into that deep, dark and strange place so that the first sounds that you hear, the sort of soundscape, is the boys' voices. And already you're in something unfamiliar, partly ethereal, but partly eerie as well. The noble lovers Lysander and Hermia have eloped to the forest from Athens. Hermia's father wants to force her to marry Demetrius, who's in love with her and follows her into the woods. But Hermia's friend Helena is completely smitten with Demetrius and follows him to the forest, only to be rejected. While the music of the fairy world is enticing and exotic, the music of the noble lovers is somewhat purer and more lyrical. Mervyn Cook again. There are certain key moments in A Midsummer Night's Dream where, for instance, Britain decides quite consciously that he's going to use all 12 possible major chords. And he does this as a kind of affirmation of love. So in Act 1, when Hermia and Lysander sing I swear to thee to each other, every phrase culminates in a different uh, major chord. I swear to Helena is completely besotted with Demetrius, so much so that she exclaims, I am your spaniel. Felicity Lott was a little uncomfortable with Helena's level of devotion. I found that quite difficult because I couldn't imagine being like that. <laughs> you know, I was trying to find something in myself that. It's called acting. Is that what it is? Yeah, I, no, I could never do that, James. You see, that's it's the trouble. <laughs> I had to had to find it in me, and I didn't. I couldn't imagine myself grabbing somebody around the knee and saying, "Beat me, strike me, I'm your spaniel." <laughs> in real life, I couldn't do it, and so I used to get terrible giggles. It's a farcical situation, ripe for fairy meddling. Oberon tells Puck to use the magic juice on Demetrius as well, so that he will fall in love with Helena and all will be well. That's the plan, at least. Oberon sings these instructions to Puck in the aria, I know a bank where the wild time blows, 
one of the standout moments of the opera. James, as Oberon, was there a particular musical highlight in the work? Well, it has a wonderful arioso, I think you call it that, in the first act, I know a bank where the wild time blows. It's, it's the most wonderful bit of writing. It's the piece that stands... Would you not say it's the thing that stands out in many ways? Oh, absolutely, and you sang it wonderfully. I mean, I always hear that in your... with you doing it, your voice. It's... it's Yes. Otherworldly, it is wonderfully otherworldly, that sort of writing, and it all everything there as well stands still, doesn't it? It's very lightly scored, and I love the falling, you know, da da da. Yeah, that's right, exactly. Just, yes, exactly. Falling phrases. of six common craftsmen, often referred to as the rustics or the rude mechanicals, are also in the forest. They are rehearsing a play which they will perform at the wedding of Theseus, the Duke of Athens, and Hippolyta, the Queen of the Amazons. The play is Pyramus and Thisbe, and Bottom the Weaver is the director and the leading man. There are things in this comedy that will never please. First Pyramus must draw a sword to kill himself, which the ladies cannot avoid. Britain's music for the mechanicals tells us there might be something slightly, well, missing from their characters. Bass Matthew Rose. He's written music that absolutely differentiates these people from the other people in the play. The Love Is It's much more luscious and intelligent music, actually, you could say. And the mechanicals talk very quickly to each other, and there's sort of very sparse orchestration. There's a lot of bassoons. And these guys, you know, there is stuff missing from their intelligence levels, and I think that absolutely comes through in the music. Benjamin Britten and his partner Peter Pears, who both collaborated on the libretto, were meticulous in their research and keen to show their reverence for the bard. He was very keen to stress that he was going to be faithful to the original play, and he even went so far as to say that uh, Pears and he, when they put the libretto together, worked principally from facsimiles of the first folio and first quarto of Shakespeare's uh, Midsummer Night's Dream. Uh, in fact, the evidence from Britain's archive is that um, they'd never looked really at these facsimiles because they, they hadn't even had the pages cut in some instances, so that was a little bit of a red herring. What Pears and Britain did was they sat down independently with two copies of the old Penguin edition of Midsummer Night's Dream and scribbled some pencil and annotations on them, then compared notes and uh, saw what they came up with. Puck, dispatched to sprinkle the magic juice on Demetrius's eyes so that he'll fall for Helena, sends Oberon's plan awry when he mistakes Lysander for Demetrius. When Lysander awakes, 
He sees Helena and proclaims his love for her, but Helena thinks he's mocking her and runs away. Meanwhile, Oberon pursues his revenge. He puts Titania under the spell, hoping that she will wake just when some vile thing is near. That vile thing takes the form of Bottom, who, thanks to the mischievous Puck, is now sporting an ass's head. Abandoned by the rest of the mechanicals, he sings to keep himself company. Titania wakes, falls in love with him instantly, and seduces him. Mervyn Cook again. Titania is given some extremely beautiful music as she sings Be Kind and Courteous to this gentleman and the fairies come round to help. Fairies and Titania are normally associated with F-sharp major, which has got six sharps. It's got sharps all over the place. Of course, Bottom is a mortal, so she falls in love with a mortal, and she immediately goes into his mortal key area, which is C major, just white notes, no accidentals. Apart from one crucial difference, which is that in the orchestra, the cello and harpsichord keep coming in with dissonant notes right down the bottom of the texture. And this is because Oberon's spell, which has put her in that predicament, um, is associated with the key of E flat major, which has those three flat notes as the, as the main accidentals. And what I like about that, it's so typical of Britain, is that it sounds wrong. Anyway, these little dissonant notes in the bass sound really disconcerting. Something's not right here. But you don't really need to know more than that if you're in the opera house. It's just something visceral. It just communicates itself. Oberon is delighted with the grotesque situation, less so with Puck's bungling of the plan to unite Demetrius and Helena. He decides to fix it by enchanting Demetrius, but now both men are in love with Helena and the result is disastrous. Britain plays out the double lovers' quarrel in this wonderfully witty quartet. written that choral scene. I've listened to it so many times and I always admire the singers who do it because you really have to almost speak some of the time, don't you? Yes, yeah, speak and spit some of the, <laughs> some of the lines. You know. um, I find it difficult to distance my singing from the anger and, you know, it's an art to, <laughs> to keep your singing mechanism. <laughs> Returned to human form, Bottom wakes from what he thinks was a strange dream. Methought I had. There is no man can tell what. Methought I was. And methought I had. But man is but an ass if he can offer to say what methought I had. What Shakespeare has created in this role and the words that Bottom is given is just, I mean, it's kind of unbelievably brilliant on every single level. It's touching, it's poignant, it's incredibly funny. 
and yet at the same time, there's some sadness there. You know, there's this, this guy who can't actually get what he probably wants in real life, and the only way he can get it is in the form of a donkey. has finally corrected his mistake. Demetrius remains under the spell so that he will love Helena, and Lysander and Hermia are in love again. The two pairs of lovers awake in the morning to the most gloriously romantic music. In 1960, when Britain was writing A Midsummer Night's Dream, the great Australian soprano Joan Sutherland was singing in Donizetti's 19th century masterpiece Lucia de Lammermoor at the Royal Opera House in Covent Garden. With her performance in mind, Britain decided to send up Italian opera during the masterful final scene of his opera when the Mechanicals performed their play Pyramus and Thisbe. Plays within a play in Shakespeare always very kind of powerful, potent moments. I think what's so brilliant about what Britain does is to recognise that and to harness the possibilities of that, but to absolutely understand that within an operatic idiom. He picks on Italianate opera. So even Thisbe's Lament becomes this sort of mad version of very familiar lamentation scenes from the big Italian operas. And of course, his scaled-down chamber opera is the perfect format in which to do that. The lovers all go off to bed, and the fairies travel through the house, blessing them and Britain plays us a lullaby. Britain's A Midsummer Night's Dream is both an exceptionally faithful rendering of Shakespeare and one of Britain's most imaginative works. For those who've inhabited Britain's dream world, it's sometimes a challenge to leave it behind and hear Shakespeare's text without Britain's music. Do you miss the music when you see the play straight now? I do miss the music. I love what it brings to the, the some of the scenes, you know. I'm going to tell you a terrible thing. I say I actually prefer the straight play because I love the Shakespeare. And I, I, I love to hear an actor declaiming Shakespeare. <laughs> Once again, Britain shows his reverence for Shakespeare's work. He jolts us from our incipient slumber as Puck pops up to deliver his final soliloquy. The music you've been enchanted by in this podcast was taken from the Glyndebourne label recording of A Midsummer Night's Dream, with Ilan Volkov conducting the London Philharmonic Orchestra with Bejun Mehta as Oberon and Iride Martinez as Titania. Jack Morlan played Puck. Timothy Robinson sang the role of Lysander. Jared Holt was Demetrius. Tuva Dalberg was Hermia. Kate Royal played Helena. And Matthew Rose sang the role of Bottom. Give me all 